We've uh, been looking at uh, human anthropology. We looked at uh, three weeks of that. We had a break last week because of uh, Father's Day. And uh, now we're just going to transition on just to, uh, to the fourth kind of uh, session or, or stage of, uh, of our five-week series uh, about what the project is all about and the core values um, of the project and how we see things, how we see people, how we see God, how we see change. Um, we've been looking at... Uh, you will remember uh, the three different aspects of uh, human anthropology. Um, we looked at the way that God created us, the way that we were made before sin. We looked at the effect that sin actually had and what sin actually comes out of, why that happens, what, what drives uh, sin itself, which is the, the notion of uh, worship in there. And then we looked uh, a couple of weeks ago at how God's redeemed us and, and changed us. Um, and, and what the redeemed person actually looks like, the person who loves Jesus. Uh, you might remember that we talked about what's normal for someone who loves Jesus is, is being family, passing tests, resisting temptation is normal, backing each other is normal, relationality uh, restored to God and to each other is normal, freedom from sin. I even looked at the fact that um, a redeemed person has dominion even when someone's killing them. Um, there's a dominion that kind of gets restored there. Uh, in a very, very real sense, uh, following Jesus, accepting Jesus into your life, uh, trusting in him to forgive your, uh, your disobedience to him, uh, changes your identity. You're fundamentally changed into being a, a child uh, of the king. Now, many of you, as I've just said that, just go, yeah, I know. Oh, you, you don't know. You actually don't know. Like that, that is an incredibly profound reality. You know, and you sit there and you kind of, yeah, I heard that. No, well, just pull up a bit, all right? On Judgment Day, Jesus is going to come back and you are going to see a whole side to being a child of the king that you've not even really appreciated that much yet. True? Like there is a depth and a profundity to being included in God's family that is simply magnificent and is... Um, speakable you're you're a royal child of the king right now that's who you are see the part of the problem for us is that we get stuck in a theological reality it's a theological reality that we're part of god's family so what does that mean for me right now yeah yeah now i kind of get that i get that we're adopted into god's family I, yeah I'm, I'm cool with that I'm, I'm sweet with that uh what, how does that change things like how is that different right now well i've got a special treat for you today you want a treat who wants a treat I've got a guy who's going to get up, I'm going to interview him. Um, and uh, the guy I'm going to interview is, is someone who's adopted. All right? Because if you haven't been adopted, there's a good chance that you don't get part of the profundity of what it means to be adopted by God. True story? So uh, why don't you give him a round of applause? Uh, Daryl Pengelly, come up, mate. Give him a welcome. I'm just going to stick him on this shouting stick. Come on, mate. He loves public speaking, this guy. Like a hole in the head. Like a hole in the head from a shotgun. Look, many of you wouldn't know this, but uh, obviously I've just said it. Daryl's Darryl's adopted. Um, so we had a bit of a yarn yesterday. I said, would you mind if I just ask you a few questions? I'll let him know what the questions were. So he just had a bit of an idea where we were going. So um, just get him to share a little bit about, about this stuff. So... What happens, Daryl, when someone actually gets adopted? Well, for me, I was, I was only about three months, two months old. 
Uh, the doctors organised it with mum and dad and they came down to Green Slopes in Brisbane, picked me up and brought me home. Yeah, Hello. Right. Yeah, that's good. I like an ice cream. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just got picked up from down Green Slope, come home and been part of the family ever since. I was yeah. treated as a son and been loved as a son. Yeah. So tell me, uh, you said something to me yesterday about just names, like first and last names, and how did all of that work for you? Yeah, well, when I was born, my um, natural, well, my birth parents called me David John. I think the last name was Brill. And then when mum and dad adopted me about two or three months later, they changed my name, which was the way it had to be done back then, so I became Daryl Pengelly. Yeah. So you, you said to me yesterday that not only did you get their last name, but they actually got to name you with the first name right. as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was hard about being adopted? Uh, well, probably because I was adopted as a, as a young baby, there wasn't anything real hard about it. Because it was done through love and it was done through a lot of heart. And it was really great. Mm. For me, it was, it's a different because I was a young baby. I think if you were a 10, 12, 14 year old, it would be a different kettle of fish. Yeah. But for me, I didn't have to experience that, which was yeah. a blessing, I think. So just kicking on from that, have you ever had a, like an identity kind of struggle? Like the possibility there, from what you're saying, is that if you're a little bit older, you could probably feel like they didn't want me. Did, did you ever have a kind of identity struggle in that space? Or? Mm, no, not really. They've always been mum and dad to me. My parents have now both passed away in heaven, I hope. And, yeah, I have sometimes thought about, I've met my real mother, do I want to meet my real father? But they're not mum and dad. Mum and dad are out in the game remembrance. Mm. So it's, it's not really been an issue, I don't think. I've known Daryl for, what, five years now, yeah, roughly. And uh, he speaks seamlessly about his family. Like he, never talks, he never talks about his adopted family because um, your brother and sister adopted too doesn't ever talk about the fact that they're adopted. It's all just brothers, sisters, mum and dad, uh, really special. Has it ever bothered you that you're not with your natural parents? Well, I have been. It doesn't... One, to me, my natural parents are mum and dad. They're the, people, they're the only parents I know, and they'll always be mum and dad, and as far as I'm concerned, they are my natural parents. My birth parents, well, when I was born, she was only 18 years old and a single mum. Back in the 60s, that was a no-no. That was life back then. It just wasn't allowed. It doesn't worry me. I'm, my natural parents have raised me up, brought me up, made me who I am today, part of it. I've been with them all my life. Yeah. You hear, like, just pause for a second. Just note the way that identity's kind of operating there. Like, there's, there isn't a split there. And I know that some people do have that kind of struggle, which is why I'm kind of asking Daryl the questions I'm asking. But just a really beautiful kind of intertwining of, of identity and who he is. Here's your chance, mate. Tell us. Take a couple of minutes. What is it? Well, you could take 20 minutes if you want. <laughs> Come on, man. What does it mean to you that someone was willing to take you into their family and look after you? Well, to me, it's the love. They didn't adopt me. They adopted us for the love. Not for anything else. It was the love in their heart that they chose to adopt three children, my brother and sister and I, and raise us as a family. I was an adopted son or an adopted daughter. We were, we were two sons and a daughter. We were family. We were nothing else. Adoption was never, ever brought, talked about. or We were told we were adopted and that was it. And that didn't mean anything to us. We were a family and that's, that's the love. They brought in for love. They adopted us for love. And the analogy is for me now, as people tell you, and most of you tell you, I'm only new to Christianity, to be adopted for love is the same thing what God does. 
he adopts us into his family for love and love. Well, maybe not love only, but love is one of the main reasons God's adopted me. That's what my parents did for me. And to be adopted and be made part of a family when I could not have had a family, there's no greater gift you could ever wish for. So good. Thanks, mate. Give him a round of applause, eh? You see, hopefully that just gives, a, gives you a little bit of a picture. So like, that is what it's like. You know, like when, when God adopts you and says, I want you, you, to be in my family, that's how intertwined your identity actually is with God. You know, that's the truth, right? But who knows that sometimes we struggle with living out a different identity. Anyone ever notice that? You can know this sort of stuff, but sometimes we actually struggle with living out a different identity. You know, if we go back to what we looked at with uh, fallen anthropology, there's a very real sense in which what's happened is us turning our worship away from God and the sin that came with it dehumanized us. It dehumanized us and it left us in a state of shame. You see, it's been said that guilt is about what you've done and shame is about who you are. You know, and, and what actually happened to humanity is this kind of um, situation that's kind of unfolded where um, we, we were really guilty for all this stuff that we've done wrong. And it's like we can go to Jesus and we can get Jesus to forgive us, but there's a mark or a stain still left on our identity, on who we are. You know, we can kind of know that God adopts us and we're part of his family, but yet we can still be stuck in a different kind of identity. And like, what are we going to do about that? How, how do we work that out? How do we sort that out? So the first thing I want to do is I, I just want to have a look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. So I'd uh, love you to open your Bibles up there. Uh, you, look, you've probably read this uh, passage heaps of times. We've probably read it a hundred times at the project already. Um, but God thought that writing his words down was a good idea and that we should read them lots of times. So uh, we'll read it again. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1 if you... You don't know your Bible, it's about two pages in from the start, all right? Uh, Genesis 3. Now, before we start, just going to sneak up to the last verse of the previous chapter. Nice little narrator's note there. The narrator says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, all right? It's just like, just like you know, it's like in a movie, you know, where you're watching a movie and the music changes and you just go, something bad's coming, all right? That's kind of the end of chapter two. It's like the music's just changed, right? It's just gone, did you? Like that, something bad's coming. Don't know what it is, but it's good right here, but something bad's probably coming. Verse one in chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees 
of the garden. You see, sin didn't just make Adam and Eve guilty. It actually made them not good enough. It actually dehumanized them. You see, there was a dehumanizing that came as a result of the sin on them as a person. And then there was a dehumanizing that actually happened to their identity. Their identity took a beating. And see, what God's done in Christ is he's given you the opportunity to have that identity restored, but we still live with the stain, right? You know, shame is the stain of sin. You know, we've still got a ding in us, all right? It's like, yeah, you can sort out all the sin, you can get forgiveness for all that sort of stuff, but at some level, who I am is still a little bit beaten up, all right? And how is that beaten up you actually going to be helped? It's like, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're like hiding from each other with fig leaves in the bushes. Like, does that seem human to you? Like, it doesn't to me. I look at that and I just go, really? Is that what we've come to? That we're hiding in bushes from one another? You see, there's a mark that's been left on us. Something about our identity. You know, and, and the instinct of Adam and Eve was to cover up and to isolate from others that are threatening us. You see, sin happened in the first place because we curved in on ourselves and worshipped ourselves. And what we've actually got now is like a double curving in. Do you see that? It's like Adam and Eve, they've sinned and it's like, now I'm going to hide from you and I'm going to hide from you and I'm going to hide from him. We're all going to be hiding from each other and we're all going to isolate from one another. There's a double curve in on ourselves. It's actually happening here. And the troubling part about this is the areas that we hide up and that we cover up are the areas that God actually wants to get into and wants to restore humanity in. Check this quote out from uh, Ed Welsh. He says this about shame. Shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Listen to this bit, especially listen. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human and there are witnesses. I want you to hear me this morning. Everyone struggles with shame. Everyone. Everyone's affected by shame. If you're sitting there today and you're going, I'm not, you just don't see it. You're just blind to it. There is not one person in this room it doesn't struggle with, with shame because shame is the stain of sin. That's what shame is. There's always some way that you're responding to shame. You know, it's, I often describe shame as the ultimate Teflon, right? I don't know whether you've ever tried to help someone really struggling with shame. You can throw anything at them. You can throw all the compliments in the world and they just hit them and then slide off. You know, it's like holding up a Teflon fry pan, you know, and throwing an egg at it, you know, it just slides off, you know, that... That's kind of how shame actually works. We hide from ourselves, we hide from God, and we hide from others. Let me ask you this question. Are you the complete person that God envisaged when he created you? Are you? Are you the full you? It's like, can you sit there right now and just go, yeah, yep. I'm living out the fullness of exactly what God had in mind when he created Peter. Or whatever your name is. This is a Japanese white pine tree. 
Under normal conditions, this white pine tree grows to 15 to 25 metres high. But in bonsai, might be 30 centimetres at the most. You know what bonsai is? Bonsai is a technique to artificially stunt the growth of trees. You dwarf a tree by pruning it. You put some wire on it and you train it with wire to be the certain shape that you want. You see, that's what shame does. Shame does that. It's not the glorious person made in God's image, but a contorted and miniature version of yourself. So let me ask you this question. Where are you trimmed? Where do you truncate yourself? Whose eyes act like wires on you that train you to be a certain way? Are they your eyes? Are they God's eyes? Are they other people's eyes? How has shame trimmed you? See, one of the fascinating things as I was thinking about this this week, just, just thinking about and reading a little bit about the nature of shame, is the way that we tell stories of shame. You see, your whole life, you live as a story, all right? You're not, you're not a computer. You don't have bits and pieces like two kilobytes here and a megabyte there and a gigabyte there, right? You actually weave your whole life together in a story. We tell each other stories, right? So, and, we, and funny stories are called anecdotes or jokes, all right? You tell a story that's funny, it's a joke, right? Or an anecdote, okay? We tell each other stories. Um, and and what, what I want you to get here is this same mechanism, I think, actually works when it comes to your identity and your shame. You don't have random pieces of information in your head about things that have happened in your life. What you actually do is you actually weave the information in your head, the experiences of your life, you weave them into a story that describes who you are, that describes your identity. So people say things like, that guy is punching above his weight in that relationship. Do you hear that? That's actually a story. They've watched this person, they've taken all the evidence and they've weaved it into a bit of a story. You know, and in our story, you know what we do in our story is we actually tell lies to ourselves. We say things that are not true. You know, you, you might be the girl or the guy who's been abused. You see, that, that's not just a piece of information. You've actually taken that piece of information and you've woven a story about who you are and what your identity is. I'm the ugly one. That's who I am. I'm the divorced one. I'm the one that can't stop looking at porn. You see, this happened to me, and then that happened, and then that happened, and then that happened. And that's me. See, that's, that's a story of shame. What about this one? I'm on that level in society like, who ever thought up the level thing, anyway? Has anyone ever wondered that? So maybe you guys don't do it. Has anyone ever heard of anyone doing that? They just go, there's different levels, and you've got to work out what level you're in. And Does anyone know what I'm talking about? See, that, that's a shame story, right? You're just grabbing little pieces of information about what's going on. You're grabbing information about what's happened to you, and you're kind of weaving it together into a story. This is my place, and here is the evidence. It's the aftermath of sin. Number two, shame 
insulates us. This is from uh, Ed Welsh. He says this, he says, Shame hides from others. It feels undeserving of anything good and it believes it will contaminate whatever comes close. Let me ask you this question. Just reflect on this. Why does hiding stop restoration? Now, it's not a trick question and it's not even really a particularly difficult question. All right? And don't feel any shame if you haven't got the answer to it. All right? <laughs> but it's, it's not, right? It's like, how could you actually deal with anything if you just hide from it all the time? Is that fair enough? Is everyone with me on that? It's like, okay, so I'm just going to hide from stuff. I'll hide from myself. I'll hide from my wife. I'll hide from God. We'll just put that in a box and we'll stick it in a cupboard and we'll deadbolt that cupboard and let's not go there. You see, one of the things that shame does, and you can see it with Adam and Eve, is it actually isolates people from each other and from God. And you know, once you're isolated and you're hiding in that shame, you're pretty well imprisoned in it and you're destined most of the time, almost without exception, unless God or others break through, you're destined to live out of that identity. Who knows that's true? You're just kind of stuck in that. And, and you know, compulsive liars end up believing the lies that they tell. You know, so if you start telling this story in your mind about your story of shame and you're hiding from other people, you're not wanting to talk to God, you're not talking to other people, you're just isolating yourself, it's like it's not long before you're just going to deceive yourself by that sort of stuff that's going on in your life. And what do we do, you know? It's like we hide with things like excuses, don't we? We make up excuses, we scapegoat other people. You buy stuff, right? When you feel like a loser, if I just buy something, this will actually give me some value, this will help me. We cover up in front of other people. We care about what other people think. We work hard so that we're not a failure. All of these things are kind of ways that we kind of isolate ourselves and try and make ourselves okay on our own. And some of you are probably sitting here today and you probably think, I don't have any problem with shame that you see that would be my first comment that you see and then I would say to you this some people don't actually have a problem with shame because they're lazy they don't do anything the only eyes that they care about are their own eyes and they sit around they don't do anything they don't take any risks for anyone else there's no risk out there that could go badly in front of other people's eyes because they're too busy living for themselves So I've got this flowchart kind of continuum thing. See this here? This is how I reckon it rolls. God created us to worship and image him. We turned away, so we worship and image an idol. We hide from ourselves and from others. We get isolated, and then we get stuck living out a false identity. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane in their book, uh, Relationships and Mess with Making... Uh, make this comment they say we know we are less human when we are all alone and the truth is we often get stuck in between these two don't we we have this dream for meaningful relationships that's kind of that end of the continuum up the other end of the continuum is self-protective isolation and we get stuck right do you know why because people hurt you right don't they so anyone, anyone know that? People hurt you. It's like, I'm not doing that again. Like, I'm not coming clean about stuff that's going on for me. 
I'm not going to connect with people anymore. And see, do you see which end you're going at that point in time? Like if you're just going, people hurt me and I'm not going to let that happen again, so I'm not going to let them see the real me, you're hitting up the end of isolation. And do you know what? That's not a good end to go to. You know why? Because you weren't made like that. You're trying to make a dishwasher mow the lawn. You get what I'm saying? That's what you're doing. Like you just weren't made to operate independently as, apart from everyone else. Now, I get it. Like, uh, don't, I'm not upping you if you're hurting because people have hurt you, but I'm just saying, don't, you can't stay up there. You cannot stay up there, right? You are not going to be restored by staying up there because that's not how you've been made. You see, we know that we've been made to be relational people, you know? And here's the thing. Become a leader of a church and hear all the stories about people who have been hurt in churches. There's my encouragement to you today, all right? Because that's one of the things that happens. You lead a church and everyone who comes to your church who's been hurt by church tells you how much they've been hurt by church. And I feel for you and I don't think it should happen. But the answer is not to disconnect from God's family. That is not the answer. You can't be... Like people say really stupid things like this. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Like it's just a dumb thing to say. All right? You know why it's a dumb thing to say? Because Jesus used the word church and he used the word church to describe his family. Like if I said to you, I don't have to go and actually ever talk to anyone in the Sondergel family to be a Sondergel, what would you say to me? Well, that's just stupid. All right? Because that's not what it means. If you're in a family, you're in a family. All right? And so you go and you go and you be part of the family. And you know what? Jesus came into the middle of a world that was busted and sinful and he knew that sinful people run churches. Didn't he? And he still said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So somehow in the middle of all of that, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, is going to do work in the middle of a fallen church that has really disappointing leaders, of which this is another one of them. All right? He's going to do a work in the middle of that church that's going to be unstoppable. Is anyone excited about that? Amen. So let's, let's not be the people. I'm not talking about church is not coming to listen to me talk on Sunday morning. That's just part of it, and it's a small part of it. Let's not be the kind of people that say you don't have to go to church to be a Christian because that is just a nonsense statement. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's like saying you've got a car and you don't have to go to a petrol station to be a car. All right? I'll tell you what happens to a car if you don't go to the petrol station. It's a, a really expensive piece of steel and plastic, isn't it? That's all it is. It's not a car because it's not getting you anywhere. It gets very isolating. It gets very isolating. Thank you, Cole. Miroslav Volf said this, this is a really good quote. Because the Christian God is not a lonely God, but rather a communion of the three persons, faith leads human beings into the divine communio. One cannot, however, have a self-enclosed communion with the triune God, a foursome as it were, for the Christian God is not a private deity. Communion with God is at once also communion with those others who have entrusted themselves in faith to the same God. Hence, one and the same act of faith places a person into a new relationship both with God and with all others who stand in communion with God. 
You can't be an independent lover of Jesus. That's what he's saying. You can't do that. And the Bible says that too. Like you just can't do that. Because you're in a family. I'm sorry. That's how it is. Now you may not like the family that you're in. But if you like the dad. Right? And your brother Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You're just in that family. I'm sorry. That's just how it is. So let me ask you these. I'm asking you lots of questions today. Let me ask you these questions. What's the nature of the conversations, the relationships that you actually have with people here in the project? There's lots of ways relationships can get messy, right? Who knows that's true? Okay. But let me ask you this. Are your conversations with people in the project limited? Like shallow? Are they safe? Are they impersonal? Is your movement towards safety stopping real relationship? Okay. This, uh, I'm gonna, this next little section is like almost Sondergeld's kind of 95 Theses nailed to the Wittenberg door by Luther. If anyone knows what I'm talking about, it's like, this is how passionately I feel about this. Right? This is, I'm going to give you 10 ways that we will fight against shame at the project. Like we will. This is, this, this is what we will, all right? So you just need to know, this is like full disclosure, I'm just going to let you know, this is what I'm doing, and whatever I'm leading with the elders here, this is what we're going to be doing. We're just going to be fighting against shame. You know why? Because shame is the arch enemy of God's restoration. You go away and you hide, and you won't change, okay? And so we are going to pursue not hiding, okay? Is anyone with me on that? So here's 10 ways we're going to pursue at the project not hiding. You ready? Here we go. Number one, we will speak openly about the things that we struggle with and we will boast in our weaknesses. It doesn't mean you have to get up here and tell everyone about your deepest, darkest stuff, right? But let me say this to you. You need to be telling someone and probably more than one person about your deepest, darkest stuff. Who is that? Tell them. Let them know where you're at. You need, you need phone a friend, right? That's what you need. It's like you need to shoot a text. You go, you know that battle I told you about? It's a really deep kind of level battle. Letting you know it's a really hot issue for me at the moment. I need someone praying into it and keeping an eye on me. We are going to talk about things that we struggle with and we are going to boast in our weaknesses. Okay? And I will try and do that appropriately from up the front. And I'm sure if you've been here long enough, you've heard me do it because it's so important, all right? And the reason why I do it is not because I want to boast about how much of a loser I am. It kind of is that. I want to boast about how good God is in my weakness. And I don't want you people to start having this community in the project where we don't talk about stuff. It's just dumb. I'll leave. I'm telling you, I'll leave. It's like, you know, you guys have a good church. Because I will not have a church where people won't talk about things that they're struggling with and be deep and honest with each other. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it's harder to not have that. Who knows that? Who's ever been in a church where you know it's harder to not have that? Okay, good. Number two. I'm going to be here all day at the moment. We will resist the urge to fix others. This is what we will do, right? Do you know why? Because you're not the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is not here in any one of your bodies in the sense that, that he is incarnated here. All right? He lives in you, but he's not incarnated here. So if you hear me talk about something that's a mess in my life, you, you need to not think straight off the bat, I'm going to fix him. I've got this sorted out. I can, I got, yeah, I've got this one. God, sit down, right? just relax, get a cold cup of lemonade or whatever God drinks, because right? I've got this sorted. Right? We're not going to do that. Okay, we're going to partner with the Holy Spirit in each other's lives, but we're not going to be the person who takes responsibility for fixing someone else and thinks that we have this mysterious key of knowledge about someone else's life that's going to unlock their whole life. Now, the Holy Spirit has that and he wants to do that stuff, but we're going to resist that urge. We will understand that behaviour is not the orienting centre around which we understand people. All right? I actually think this is probably the biggest... Um, promoter of shame within church communities okay is they focus on the behaviors that people undertake instead of focusing on the heart you have my guarantee that while i'm here by the grace of god we will not be focusing uh, and centering around what people are doing we're going to be centering around the heart and what people what's motivating the things that people are doing we will understand that the heart is the seat of human behaviour, all right? And you may not notice this, but that wages war against shame, right? If we became a culture where behaviour was in the centre, then all of a sudden, I mean, some of you have been in churches like that, right? Up here's kind of man of God, down here's something else, and you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to, you know, get some things squared away and get them in order. Now, we think if you get your heart squared away with the right stuff, then behaviour follows, all right? That's what we think. So we're not going to, on the front end, kind of focus on human behaviour. We will appreciate that whilst there are variations in the effects of false worship, the core disorder is the same for all people, all right? What do I mean by this? Someone walks into church today, they didn't, but if an alcoholic walks into the church drunk, we are going to be saying they've got a similar kind of heart issue going on to the other church member who went to the shops yesterday and maxed out their credit card buying clothing, all right, when they can't afford it. Get my point? There's a similar kind of heart issue going on underneath. We're going to start at that point, all right? We're going to recognise that different idols have different effects, all right? It's probably going to hurt more people to be an alcoholic, if you're a father or a mother or something, it's, it just probably is. But it doesn't mean that the core issue is not the same or very similar. Six, we will be good listeners because we know that people are complex. Who here has ever started sharing your story and you get like 22.35 seconds into it? All right? And you just see that look in the other person's eye and you just know they're just going, yeah, we've got this man, we've got this guy squared away. As soon as he stops, I'm jumping in here because I can fix everything for him right now. All right? And then they kind of, they're right in there and you're standing there going, you just don't get me and I'm not going to talk to you again. Not like that. We're going to resist thinking that we get people. And we're going to appreciate that people are complex. You know, as soon as you do that, if you kind of step in and you just go, I think I get you, I'm all over you, man. See, shame starts to take 
a bit of a place in what's going on there. Seven, we will have small groups that seek to get below the surface. All right? The thing that drives me nuts about small groups sometimes, just telling you, I uh, probably shouldn't tell you this because if I'm leading a small group and you do it, you're just going to be going, oh, well, that's Peter thinking, right? But it drives me nuts how people go third person all the time. So one of the things that happens in churches that I've seen most of my life is let's talk about theology and let's talk third person. And I go, let's stop talking about theology that's off there as an abstract kind of intellectual exercise and let's start talking first person. Let's do that. So in our small groups, we're going to push to get below the surface. Eight, we understand that information alone does not fix or save anyone. Now, hang with me for a minute. Don't read the second half. Now that I've said that, you're reading it. But you are not a computer. Your life, right, is not going to be solved by someone finding one particular line of code that needs to be put into your system and then you'll be okay. It's just not going to be that way because you're not an information machine. You're a relational person. That's what you are. So you know what? If you're relational and you're not an informational machine, that means that you need relationship to fix you. Is that, is that fair enough? So you know what we're going to do here is we're going to remember the second half of this. Truth is embodied in the person of Christ and salvation will ultimately always have a relational flavour. So you know what? Truth is not less than an intellectual concept. It's way more than that. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth. Okay? So here's your problem, right? Truth, all truth that exists, right, is embodied in a person and the only way you can get to that properly is by being personal with that person. All right? So we're going to resist a little bit having ongoing week after week after week abstract, random, theological conversations about things that don't affect anyone. And that doesn't mean that we don't care about theology. We care very much about theology. But we care about pushing theology to the point where it matters in the personal. That's what we're doing. And you know what? That's what I have to do every week when I prepare stuff to tell you on Sundays. All right? You take something where everyone's going, oh, that's a nice idea. And he's going, no, nah, it's not, a nice, not just a nice idea. It is part of Christ and we've got to find a way to cash this out so it's personal, relational and meaningful and not just an intellectual idea. Okay? Am I against anyone who wants to have intellectual conversations? No, I'm not. And I say, go for it. I've, been, I've read heaps of stuff, right? All I'm saying is that we are going to be pushing all the time and I, I just want to encourage you to push into working out what does that mean personally? How does that look relational? If that truth is true, it's part of a person. So how do I access and operate in that in a personal way? And if you've got the answer to that, I'd love to, love to hear that because I'm still trying to work it out. Nine. We will be okay with a messy church because God is okay with messy Christians. Okay, here's my question for you. Because some of you are sitting there probably and you're going, hang on, it's like, doesn't Peter say something about you've got to be holy as God's holy? And didn't Jesus say something, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? All right, let me ask you a quick question. Who here this morning got up this morning and God gave you a download, right, of 372 
items that he wants you to square away by 5 o'clock this afternoon. He knows that it probably would be longer than 372. True? It would be, right? Who knows that most of the time God's only working on maybe a couple, maybe three things at a time, and leaving the other 300, 3,000, 3 million. <laughs> True, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he wants you to be holy, but you know what? He also doesn't want your brains to be all over the wall. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how am I going to do this? You know, now I've got to, what have I got to do? Three, I can't even remember 300, you know, by five o'clock. And the last one, similar to what I've shared already, we will strive to speak of truth in a way that is personal. This is how we're going to fight against shame. Now, I just want to transition to the last little section here today. And this is a bit of a newish kind of revelation for me. So just been thinking about, okay, so God's come in Christ. He's died on the cross. Um, he's given us the opportunity, according to John 1, verse 11 to 13. Listen to this. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in my head, I'm just going, okay, so I can see all of that. God's actually made us part of his family. That's kind of a, a new identity. And it just going, so what do we do with this conflict that's going on between old identity and new identity? Okay, well, what it, how, are we, how are we doing that? How are we going to resolve that one? Is it, we just got to sit down and just chant long enough Bible verses about the fact that we're God's children to actually learn that? and actually grow in that and live in that? Is, that? is that what we have to do? And I want to suggest to you today that I feel like I'm just right on the cusp of a bit of a new revelation. I think it has everything to do with family. Everything to do with family. And here's my thing. Shame came about... Let me, let me start back even further. Sin, the first sin was a relational disorder. Right? Adam and Eve worshipped something and loved something more than God. Shame came about. You hear this? Shame is a relational disorder. Why? Because it's always about your eyes or someone else's eyes or God's eyes. Right? It's a relational disorder. And you know what's over here is the resolution. Like if relationality started it and relationality complexified it, relationality is probably going to be the, the doorway out. Does that make sense? Some of you go, that's not a very convincing argument. But that's the best one I've got at the moment, right? This is a new revelation for me, uh, a bit of a new thing. And so much so, I started working on it this week and I got halfway through the week and I just ended up, my brain just got scrambled halfway through because I'm just going, what is, it, what is this thing about family that deals with identity and just kind of locks things in? You know, it's like we've got this wonderful theological truth and, and here's my big idea is I think that God's designed family to appropriate or incarnate the theological truth. Does that make sense? And I think that God's created the, the church as his family to be the, the place structurally where all that wonderful theological truth gets practiced in reality and people's identities are changed as it's practiced in that reality. Now, why would that be? Well... I, I kind of think it's, there's a side to it, and I haven't cashed out that question very well, but there's a side to it I think it's pretty obvious. 
right? Who knows that some of the most ridiculous behaviour that ever exists happens in families? Who knows that? It just does, right? And it's like, and people get up the next morning and still brother and sister. Like, how does that work? I don't even know how that works, right? I hear stories of, uh, you know, I've heard so many stories when I worked in the school here doing pastoral care of kids telling me stuff about things that are going on with their families and there's longing that they still have for their family. There is something about the family unit that is like, just can carry a weight that nothing else can actually carry. You know, there's, there's a real sense, sense, isn't there, that we are the most naked, not literally, and if, if it is literally, you know, I can help you with that. We'll, we'll get the elders involved and we'll try and sort that out. But it, it is true, isn't it, that you're kind of most naked in family. Listen to this from John 13, uh, 33 to 34. Uh, Jesus speaking here. Listen to this. He says, little could be translated, my dear children. Yet a little while I am with you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's the thing. How do you understand? What's, what's one of the key ways that you understand God's love for you? Well, your brothers and your sisters love you like that. That's how you find out. You, you do family, right? And it's not just Jesus going, go out and love people. He goes, hang on, you're all my kids. So I'll tell you what, kids, here's a good idea. Here's my command here. This is what I think would be really good. How about, kids, you guys love each other the same way that I love you? That's a good plan, right? I mean, all of you should be going, that's a good plan. Would you like to be loved like that? You would, wouldn't you? You'd love to be loved like that by other people. There is a sense in which we feel the love of God when we are being loved. So let me give you four. I'm going to go a tiny little bit over it. We started late, so uh, trusting you can hang in. But let me give you four uh, ways that I think family operates uh, to bring restoration in people's lives. You know, first one's this. Family is where you are you. Isn't it? You know, look at the Bible and see if you can find me a perfect nuclear family. Now you can see parts of them, right? I mean, you might look at Noah and you go, things are going pretty well for Noah, but then he gets drunk and he's naked and his son laughs at him and you just go, no, that's not cool. We're not going well at that point. And you just keep going through the families in the Bible and you're just kind of going, it's really hard to find one that's just kind of like the model family. You know, you get to Timothy and his mum and his grandma and that's pretty good. And then I'm just going, well, where the heck's his dad? I don't even know where his dad is and what happened to granddad? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? You just, where is the perfect family in the Bible? Well, I'm just letting you know, and this might be a comfort to you, it's pretty hard to find one. They tend to be really messy. The Bible tends to outline principles that families should be gunning for rather than holding up one family and says, that's what you need to be like that. But here's the truth, isn't it? You can be an absolute disaster in your family and still be related. Can't you? Absolute disaster. You know, you get up in the morning and you look at your, your son or your daughter or your mum or your dad or your sister or brother. Man, you've been sleepwalking on the highway again, haven't you? It's like you've been hit by something. All right? Some weird thing going on there. You know, sometimes in families, uh, people just go, stop going on with that crap, you know? It's just like, you know what's real. I know what you're up to. I know what you get up to. I know what, what you're doing right now. You're just, you're kind of being you. Bedhead, you know? 
Maybe just maybe it's anger. You know, maybe you get up in the morning and it's like, man, has there just been a whole I don't even know what a herd of snails are, right? But it's like you just got drill marks all over your do you know what I mean? You're at your least presentable at that point in time. Um, your family see your undies. You just something did he just say undies in church? Yeah, he did. Our kids just won't hang clean undies on the line. That's why I do that, just not doing that. But it, I mean, that's even weird, isn't it? I mean, we put up shrubs over there because everyone could see our line. It's like we've got 700 school students can look over and see all the Sondergirl undies. But that's what families are, right? It's just like you see each other how you are. That's what family is, right? Now, I'm not saying that lots of harmful things don't happen in families, but there is something about families where the worst can happen and there's still some kind of longing for a relationship. It it has a strength and a power that supersedes so many things that seems to be able to handle a lot of pressure. You can be a total loser and still be related. You know, one of the things about family, I think, which is really key, is loyalty, isn't it? You know, in a family, you can be who you truly are. You can be an absolute disaster. And because you're related, somehow you're still stuck with them. And some of you just go, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> All right. Just go, I am stuck with my family. And, and it's, there's a bunch of disaster in there. You know, and do you know what? Uh, you can deceive others, but you can't trick your family. Does anyone know that's true? That's Regia from like a mile away. It's just like, I don't know what you're doing. You can be yourself in family. And you know, it would be my heart that in the project here that we could be ourselves. We could be an absolute disaster and it would be okay because we'd be loyal to one another. Family helps you to know who you are. I'm not going to read this scripture, but you probably know this is the 1 Corinthians 12 thing about how God's made the whole church to be a body. It's just like, how would you know what? You know, it's, it's like some of you are an arm, some of you are a hand, some of you are an eye, some of you are an ear. Do you know what? You're actually meant to find out part of who you are by being in family. All right? You learn about yourself. You know, remember back at Created Anthropology, Adam knew more about his femaleness, his, his maleness, I should say, because of the femaleness of Eve. And Eve knew more about her femaleness because of the maleness of Adam. They needed each other to know who they were. Family helps you to know who you are. Family corrects stories of shame. This is a pretty huge one, right? Remember, I was talking about that before, about how we weave stories of shame into our lives. Do you know, families have a way of intersecting that stuff. They say things like this, what are you doing that for? That's not you. Has anyone ever had that said to them in their family? Someone goes, what are you doing? That? That's, that's, that's not who I know you to be. That's really unusual. Like, it's kind of a picket. It's like, and maybe sometimes you come home and someone said some stuff to you and it's really hurt you. And, and sometimes in families, people will go to say things like this. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. That's not who you are. They're an idiot. You ever had that one? They're an idiot. Don't listen to them. You see, you know what's happening there is family is actually coming in 
and cutting off the story of shame that you're starting to write about things that happen in your life. You know, another thing that they do is, is they, because everyone comes from, it just kind of brings their own kind of different kind of assumptions, they can see when we're getting deceived by something too, can't they? Just go, that is not good, man. And you're going, eh, it's all good. It's all working really well for me. I think it's great. And I think this is going to be a life changer for me. And the, your brother or sister's going, yes, it will. But in the opposite direction to what you think it will be. You know, you just don't see something. They just bring different assumptions. They remind us of our identity, you know. Jesus said there's a way that we can, can pick out a speck in someone else's eye and have a log in our own. Well, that actually tells you that there's, I think there's a little bit of a gifting in humanity to be able to see the detail of what, go, what is going on in someone else's eye, even when ours is very, very blind. There's this beautiful uh, scripture in Second Peter 1 where Peter actually goes through all these virtues, all these great character qualities that people who love Jesus have and you know what he says he says if you don't have these you've forgotten who you are I encourage you to go and read it go and read 2 Peter 1 at home if you don't have these you've forgotten who you are and you know how he ends the paragraph and you'll miss it if you're not careful he ends the paragraph by talking in verse 10 he says therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election rah, rah, rah. it's just kind of sneaks it in there what is actually going on in Second Peter 1, but a brother of yours is correcting your story about yourself. You know what I'm saying? That's what he's doing. It's Peter going, you just need to stop here, you've forgotten something. And that's how family works. Family just kind of says, hey, just stop. There's something going on here that you don't actually see. You've forgotten something, you've forgotten who you are. 3D. You like my nomenclature? quote from C.S. Lewis, he used to meet with three guys, one of them was uh, Tolkien, another guy was Charles Williams and Charles died. Listen to this quote from Lewis, in each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity, I want other lights than my own to show all his facets now that Charles is dead I shall never again see Ronald's, Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, Holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. What is he saying? Lewis is saying that you understand more about God by being with other people that love God. That's what he's saying. All right? So you need to be in family. You need to be in relationship. Hear this. We will feel that we are loved by God when we know him. Relationally not just intellectually. We will feel that we are loved by God when we know him. So here's the thing. How do you actually behold the glory of God in a way that you get transformed from one degree of glory to another? Well, one way that you do it is you get amongst Christians and you see Barry over here just absolutely just loves this thing about God. And you don't even think about it that much. You just go, that 
is incredible. Barry's going, he's going, oh, you've got to look at this. You've got to look at how good God is here. And you're just going, yeah, it doesn't look that good to me, but he keeps going on about it. Every time you get together, he's talking about how good that thing is about God. And eventually you're just kind of going, that is good. I'm with you. I'm getting with you on that one, Barry. And I'm seeing something about God that I don't naturally get attracted to. Other people reveal more of God and his glory to us. All right, let's finish here. The sacraments and shame. Most of you would know the story of Jesus in Luke 8. You know, he's on the way to heal someone, to help someone. They're in a crowd. There's people hustling and bustling and pushing and shoving. There's a lady there who's uh, been bleeding, which in that culture, the Jewish system, she's unclean. Shame. You just talk about shame. You talk about identity for her. She's had many, many years of being a shame-filled lady, probably. And she's in there, and she, in her head, she's just gone, if I can just touch Jesus... I'll be okay. So she's in the crowd. You know, and do you know, shame is by association, right? That's kind of what that quote said earlier, but do you know something that's true as well? Is that glory is by association too. You ever talk to a name dropper? They just dropping names all the time. It's like, I know these people. See, glory is by association. There's a sense here with this lady. It's like, if I can just touch Jesus, I might actually be able to get clean. If I can get close enough to him. So she sneaks in and she touches him. And what does he do? He outs her. <laughs> he outs her. It's just like if you were there and you had been teaching pastoral care classes in, in your church, like I do sometimes, you'd just be going, ah, was that the best thing to do? Who touched me, he says. You see, there was something really physical about what this lady did, you know. And some of you today, probably you just think, oh, I would probably, it would do me good if I could physically touch Jesus like that lady did. It would do me the world of good if I could just touch that lady. But he's not here like that now. But what's he given? Do you know that God's given you a couple of sacraments that you can touch? that are meant to be like the touching Jesus. See, a sacrament is when the physical and the spiritual kind of intersect. And the two sacraments that I'm talking about are baptism and communion. You see, for this lady, it was like, if I can just touch him, it might be different. And Jesus would have you to be thinking, if I can just feel the water of baptism, it might be different. You get my point? If I can actually feel something physical that represents and intersects with the spiritual, it might be different. You know what baptism is? Baptism is a sign of cleansing. It's a sign of acceptance. It's a sign of union with Jesus, forgiveness, empowerment by the Holy Spirit. It's actually a sign that says you're in the family now, which is why you only do it once. Because you don't just go, go in and then out, right? You go in the family, you're in the family, all right? That's how it works. And you get baptised to represent that. It's like coming to God as a needy child. It's like baptism takes Jesus' death and his resurrection and applies it to the present. 
And the truth about what's happened to you in the spiritual is as real as the water that's on your body. So let me tell you something that we're really historically being pretty average at is celebrating baptisms. All right? We've just been pretty average at it. So I'm just going to let you know what, what we're going to do in November. We are just going to do everything that we can to just go nuts in celebrating it. Okay? And so you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a combined service on the ovals. We're going to stick in the grandstand. We're going to get a bucket big enough that we can fit three people in. And we're going to fill it up with freezing cold water from the fire hose. All right? Because at the end of the day, if Muhammad won't go to the mountain, we'll bring the mountain to Muhammad. All right? And we're going to baptize people in the middle of church, which every other church gets to do, but we don't because we don't, we don't have a baptismal font here. All right? And we're going to celebrate it. Why? Because it's people in the family. And we're just going to get right into it. And we'll make it a party because it's amazing. And here's the thing. If you've not been baptized and you love Jesus, you need to get baptized. All right? Some of you go, oh, I'm just waiting for the right time. All right? Now, if I said to you, when should I stop flying off the handle with my kids? Should I wait for the right time to do that? What would you say? Do it now, right? Because God wants you to do it. He wants you to not fly off the handle with your kids. Now, God says, get baptized. So don't, you don't, the right time is when you do it, which is straight away, pretty much, in November. Keep an eye out for that. Listen to uh, what Welsh says about baptism. Baptism is a gift to you. Whether you remember the event or not, it is like a wedding ring. I know a young man who had a concussion from a car accident. For a few hours, he couldn't remember any events from the previous year, including his wedding. When he regained consciousness on a hospital gurney, pants cut off to check for injuries and wife at his side, he felt a bit exposed. He knew he had been dating the woman next to him, but he wasn't certain of anything more. Then he noticed his wedding ring and just smiled. He figured that she had seen more than cut pants and it was all legitimate and he's fine now. <laughs> this is a Heidelberg catechism about baptism, right? Listen to this. Son over here. How does baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross is for you personally? Listen to this. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body... So certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity. In other words, all my sins. Go with me on the other side over here. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as water washes away dirt from our bodies. But more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. The intermingling of the physical and the spiritual. And let me finish on communion. Maybe I'll just ask uh, Nath. Nath's going to come up and play and lead us in a bit of a song. You see... Communion is about you reaching out to Jesus in your uncleanness. And we're going to have communion today. It's about you reaching out to him in your shame. It's about you saying, look, I'm short of the mark. But do you know what else communion's about? Communion's about family. It's about you being in God's family. Think back with me for a second to the 
the lady with the flow of blood. Do you know, maybe we don't know, but do you know maybe what one of the things was that was going through her mind? I might contaminate him. She's reaching out, out of her uncleanness. I might contaminate Jesus. Well, do you know something? That's exactly what happened on the cross. You know, humanity reached out and touched Jesus and contaminated him. And I would ask you this morning, are you willing to contaminate the king? Are you desperate enough? Do you know that he invites you to touch him?